Welcome to Medical Education Trends podcast series. Here we'll have discussions and interviews about hot topics in medical education. I'm your host, Merta Teravi, an Iranian medical doctor and a health professions education enthusiast. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Shana Pandya. Dr. Pandya is a Canadian physician, scientist, astronaut candidate, program graduate with the International Institute for Astronautical Sciences, and she had a lot of other efforts in the field of space medicine. That's why we had this really interesting discussion with her about this topic. Let's hear what happened. Thank you again, Shana, for joining us today. This is the, the Medical Education Trends podcast series that we actually talk about the trends and new topics in medical education. Actually, this topic that we're going to talk about, I think it's very new in, in, in something like medical education, but I'm sure that it will be a great talk. And I think... and. I'm sure that our audience will love it. So and before we can start, uh, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah. Yeah. First of all, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here. So for those who don't know me, my name is Dr. Shauna Pandya. I'm a Canadian physician. Um, most of my practice centers on um, rural emergency medicine um, with a little bit of urban clinic and a focus on women's health. Uh, and then what's probably more interesting to your audience is my background in space medicine, extreme environments and austere uh, environment medicine. Um, so by way of background, uh, as you as your audience may have heard, I'm a scientist astronaut candidate program graduate with the International Institute for Astronautical Sciences. I'm an aquanaut. I'm a pilot in training, a skydiver. Um, I am a fellow of the Explorers Club and one of their EC50 uh, Explorers Changing the World. And I'm also the chief instructor of the IIAS Operational Space Medicine class and director of the Space Medicine Group. Wow, great. Thank you so much. So that is a list of really cool topics for a physician. So can you tell us a little about that? How did you end up in some kind of cool topics? How did you end up being an astronaut scientist or being a skydiver? And can you tell us a little about that, specifically talking yeah. about space medicine? Absolutely. I think that's a great conversation and a great place to get started. And I think um, my journey forward was very similar to a lot um, of people who may be listening in that I wanted to be an astronaut when I was a kid. Um, and I just never grew out of that dream. And so for me, I looked to someone who I could model myself after. And for me, that was Dr. Roberta Bondar, Canada's first 
woman astronaut in space. And I said, okay, well, she's Canadian. I'm Canadian. She's female. I'm female. So now all I need to do is go be a neuroscientist, a doctor, and then an astronaut. Um, and in my mind as a child, it was that simple. And so literally that's what spurred me to study neuroscience um, in undergrad. Um, it's what spurred me to pursue medicine. Um, and then um, the other part of it is the space dream is, you know, for a long time, I was focusing solely on medicine until it came time to apply for medicine. And um, I realized that a couple of things, that medicine is extremely competitive um, and that if I didn't get into medicine, I would want to be focusing on something I was equally passionate about. And then that's where the space dream came alive again, um, because I heard of something called the International Space University, um, where you could go do a master's program and learn about everything related to space, from human spaceflight to um, planetary geology to space policy and, of course, space medicine. And um, for me, I was lucky enough to get into both the master's program at the International Space University as well as medicine that year. And uh, what I did was I just asked for a deferral. I was lucky enough to get it. And that was the beginning of my journey into realizing that we could make um, a career out of space medicine. Uh, that was the first time I was lucky enough to um, work in a research capacity within space medicine. I worked at the crew medical support office of the European Astronaut Center um, at the European Space Agency. And then that set the stage for starting to have publications, papers, book chapters, and eventually made me a competitive enough candidate to um, attend the aerospace medical elective at NASA's Johnson Space Center when I was completing medical school. Well, that was great. So uh, as I've understood, you've actually uh, studied some kind of the master's in aerospace medicine in parallel with your with your um, actually undergrad medical education, right? Um, it's a little bit different from that. And so before I did medical school, I did a one-year master's um, at ISU. And it's not quite aerospace medicine. It's actually more of a broad introduction to everything related to space. So it can be everything from propulsion systems to remote sensing satellites to space life sciences. And it's really meant to be a broad introduction. But the beauty of the program, um, in addition to being highly collaborative, highly international, is you can actually tailor the internship program that you do to an area of your interest. And for me, that was space medicine. And that's where the internship at the European Astronaut Center came through. Oh, okay. So, so uh, let, me, let, me, let me begin with, with this question. So uh, is it space medicine or is it aerospace medicine? So how does it uh, actually, how yeah. does it different? Yeah. That's a really great question. So when we talk about aerospace medicine, it's a bigger um, basket than simply space medicine. So aerospace medicine can be anything related to pilot um, health. It can be related to um, doing physicals and monitoring commercial pilots to make sure that they're fit to fly. And then a smaller subset of that is space medicine, um, which relates to astronaut health and human spaceflight. And most people, when they hear that term, they say, why is that even a field? You know, how is that possible? And then you take a step back and realize that the spaceflight environment is incredibly hazardous and it actually takes a lot to keep humans happy, healthy and thriving in space, which we can absolutely talk about this hour. Yeah, great. So um, talking about your activities, um, I, I was actually seeing something in your actually uh, in your profile, which was the Project Possum. Uh, can you tell yeah. us a little bit about, uh, about that and what is that? 
Yeah, absolutely. So Project POSSUM uh, stands for Polar Suborbital Science of the Upper Mesosphere. Like nearly everything in space, it's an acronym. Um, and what it actually, the institution it now goes by the name IIAS or International Institute for Astronautical Sciences. So if I refer to POSSUM and IIAS, they're the same organization. And so um, as I was completing my medical training, I had been out of the space sphere for a while and I was wanting to um, get back into space and contribute and um, I heard about this thing called Project Possum. One of my friends had applied um, and I thought, you know, what is this? I'm not quite sure. Um, the mandate of the Possum program, which eventually grew into many other programs, which we'll talk about, which is why the organization grew, was to teach citizen scientists about upper atmospheric science, specifically a cloud called a noctilucent cloud, which is thought to be related to climate change. And so the idea was sending um, citizen scientists, which is a scientist maybe who has an interest in helping further exploration and research, but without formal training in that particular field, um, was the idea of sending these citizen scientists up to the upper mesosphere in suborbital flight to get more data about these noctilucent clouds and at least teach them about the background um, related to this, and then also start getting them experienced to, to um the environment they might experience if they were to go up in a suborbital flight. So where that translated into a practical program is we did a virtual program learning about the noctilucent clouds. And then we did an on-site ground school where we took play, uh, took uh, part in uh, suborbital mission simulations in a suborbital simulator. We took place in uh, hyperbaric um, physiology studies in an altitude chamber. And very coolly, we actually took place in aerobatic flight um, to explain to uh, be exposed to and to learn how we react to changing G loads, whether it's uh, an increased G force or a decreased G force. Um, and so for this is the origins of where IIAS came from. And since then, um, Given the interest and the success of the program, we've uh, we've expanded now to include programs from our parabolic flight campaign, where we teach citizen scientists to perform science and fly their payloads um, in zero G, um, uh, to my own course, which focuses on operational space medicine, to um, starting to design biomedical payloads for suborbital flight and beyond. Oh, that's great. So um, I'm sorry that my questions are, are really simple because I want to uh, actually I'm novice in this in this science and in this uh, topic. So I wanted to ask some clear questions that can clear my mind. So sure. when you talk about, for example, space health or the astronauts health, and what kind of challenges, what kind of health problems can actually happen for the uh, astronauts? Yeah, these aren't novice questions at all. These are great questions. And so um, let's talk, talk about starting with what we know. And so when we look at the data of 60-ish years of human spaceflight and what we know, most of it comes from low Earth orbit. So it comes from space shuttle, it comes from Mir, it comes from uh, Gemini and Mercury, and of course now um, the International Space Station. And so from here, we kind of have, the, have this laundry list of um, space effects. We have everything from increased radiation, um, we have increased vibration loads, increased G loads on launch and landing, um, very, very highly operational stressful schedule on the International Space Station or ISS. Um, astronauts are scheduled down to the five minute mark. Um, there's uh, 
there's um, altered day-night cycles. So when you're flying on the ISS, you are exposed to 16 sunrises and sunsets every 24 hours, um, or the equivalent of uh, one sunrise sunset every 90 minutes. Um, and then, of course, there's the big thing that we haven't talked about yet, which is zero gravity. And the, the bottom line is that basically every bodily system is impacted by the microgravity or zero G or weightless environment. Um, and so that means our without countermeasures, our muscles lose mass, our bones lose density, our fluids shift upwards, our faces feel congested, our hearts um, perceive an increased uh, fluid load, uh, causing us to urinate out more. Um, the combination of fluid shifts and bone density loss means that we're more prone to forming calcium oxalate, um, uh, renal stones. Um, and the surprises just keep coming. So what we've learned in the past 15 years is that even cerebrospinal fluid is uh, impacted and especially in long duration space flight. So anything over 30 days, um, we know that there's impaired CSF drainage um, leading to uh, impaired uh, uh, and unevenly distributed increased intracranial pressure, particularly around the optic um, nerves. And for whatever reason, this seems to predominantly affect males um, and in certain cases cause hyper or visual effects. And so this is solely speaking to what we know from low Earth orbit. And so the question becomes, what do we have? What happens when we go beyond low Earth orbit? And what happens when we go to the moon, Mars and beyond? And um, it's not just a theoretical question. So for anyone who's um, following human spaceflight, the international community, NASA and its uh, international partners, the European Space Agency, CSA, the Japanese Space Agency, um, JAXA, they're all planning to um, go to the moon and beyond, starting with Lunar Gateway, humanity's first um, a space station uh, in deep space in orbit around the moon, and then following on with the Artemis mission. So the follow-up to Apollo, um, where we go, where the plan is to send the first woman, first person of color, and the next man on the moon. And so um, this is why the question of, well, what happens when we go beyond low Earth orbit becomes a relevant one. So taking everything that we've discussed so far, we actually summarize the challenges of exploration class missions to far off destinations um, within a ridge framework. So we talk about increased radiation. So as much as we talk about increased radiation um, at the level of the International Space Station, we're still relatively protected from um, high energy ionizing radiation from galactic cosmic rays, from solar particle events, um, we're still protected at the ISS because the Van Allen belts filter out that increased um, radiation. So we talk about increased radiation, we talk about the challenges of isolation and confinement. So remember, if you're on Mars, um, you don't have the opportunity to you know, play with your pet. You don't have the opportunity to talk to your family regularly. And um, part of that is related to the next um, challenge, which we call distance from Earth. Um, so um, the further we go from Earth, the further light has to travel, um, even traveling at the speed of light. And with the space, the size of the distances involved in space flight, um, light can only travel so fast. So that introduces communication delays. So when you get to the moon, um, you're dealing with a two second time delay. 
And then when you get to Mars, depending on the alignment of um, the, the Earth and Mars, you can actually be dealing with a six to 46 minute round trip delay. So now imagine I wanted to call my family back home on Earth. It would be 46 minutes before um, we said hi, hello together um, at the furthest points. So then continuing on within this ridge framework, we also talk about altered gravity. So, so far we've talked about um, the, the physiological effects in zero gravity, but we haven't talked about the effects in lunar gravity, which is 17% of what we experience on um, Earth or uh, Martian gravity, which is 38% of what we, we experience on Earth. And so we have all this data saying what humans do in 1G on Earth, and we have some data saying what humans do in 0G, but we actually don't know much at all about what humans do in altered gravity. Um, and then finally, to close out this ridge framework, we talk about everything else which falls under hostile environments. So we know um, this includes the altered day-night cycles that we talked about earlier. So on the moon, um, you, if you're at the equator, your day-night cycle is 14 days of day and 14 nights of night. Whereas if you're down at the South Pole, if you're in a crater, you actually might be exposed to long periods of darkness. Uh, another challenge that falls under hostile environments is increased dust exposure. So what we know from the lunar, um, from the Apollo era missions is that lunar dust was a huge problem for astronauts. It was a skin irritant, it was a respiratory irritant, and it also clogged up the uh, joints of their suits. So to summarize, we've talked about a lot, but when we talk about the challenges of health on long duration missions, we talk about the ridge framework, increased radiation, isolation, confinement, distance from earth, altered gravity and hostile environments. Well, uh, thank you for your for your great answer. But I want to stop you right here because the the question that came up to my mind is that all of these um, um, the, these kind of challenges um, was considered for some days and some years ago. Uh, these were considered for astronauts only. But nowadays we have more kind of commercial space flights, right? So we have more citizens that are going to go to space. So um, is it, uh, can we say that the significance of this science, the space science is more today than before? Yeah, yeah, I'm so glad that you touched upon the relevance of commercial spaceflight because that's the other big challenge in human spaceflight in my mind. And so as you've touched upon, this is probably the most accessible time in human spaceflight um, in human history. And so previously, up until the past two years, maybe around 600 people had been to space. Um, now, in the last 18 months alone, we've seen the rise of suborbital, suborbital commercial spaceflight with Blue Origin, with Virgin Galactic. Um, we've seen the oldest humans fly. We've seen um, humans, the youngest humans fly. We've seen folks who know previously never would have had a chance to go to space. Uh, and then we've also seen this extend to the orbital sphere. So um, we've seen the first all civilian crew with the Inspiration4 mission. Um, and then, so they flew on a Dragon capsule uh, last fall. And then um, we saw Axiom launch its first ever Axe one mission. And now there's more plans for uh, commercial space stations. Um, um, so we see, you know, Orbital Reef with Blue Origin, NanoRacks, um, Axiom has plans for its own commercial space station. And then one of the hats I wear um, is working with Orbital Assembly Corporation, which plans to put the first commercial partial gravity rotating space station uh, in, in orbit. And so... 
Coming back to your question, we just talked about how challenging human uh, the space environment is for human spaceflight. And then the other part of that that we haven't mentioned is when you're talking about sending NASA astronauts, Canadian Space Agency astronauts, ESA astronauts to space, they're very, very heavily medically, physiologically, and psychologically selected. They want the healthiest of the healthy so they can mitigate all of these, these challenges from happening. So reasons people have been disqualified from astronaut selection in the past. Um, we know that back pain is an issue in spaceflight. So if they have recurrent herniated discs, that's disqualifying. We know that folks with asymptomatic kidney stones because of the increased risk of kidney stones have been disqualified. So then coming back to your question, how is it all of a sudden we're sending the really old, the really young, the healthiest of, uh, or not no longer the healthiest of the healthy? So this is a one, another one of my areas of research. I've um, published with one of my research groups, uh, medical guidelines on commercial suborbital spaceflight. And um, what, we've, uh, what we've learned is that for short duration spaceflight, the data from ground centrifuge studies suggests that even if you have chronic conditions, even if you're really old, even if you have an insulin pump, even if you have a congenital heart defect, all of these people tend to do very well in hypergravity environments. And then as we're starting to send folks to space on suborbital flight, these flights are such a short duration, minutes to hours, that um, there's no real chance uh, the risk of running into medical issues is low. And then even when we talk about orbital flights that have happened so far, they're still relatively short duration. So um, the Inspiration4 mission was three days. Um, the follow-on Polaris mission will be five days. Um, the Axia mission was 10 days plus a few extra. They still don't qualify as long-duration spaceflight. So this is how we're saying, okay, we can actually overcome the challenges, the medical challenges of sending humans to space, as long as we do it for a relatively short duration of time. Well, thank you. So, um, but uh, b before moving on to, to the education-related questions that I want to ask you, I would ask you something else. But, but when somebody, for example, like you, uh, continue his or her uh, career to into the space medicine, and uh, how does he or she ends? For example, uh, we have some kind of medical professionals in the space flights, or no? Uh, these kinds of uh, actually medical. Services are uh, are actually completed with telemedicine or something like that. So you're asking how medicine is performed for astronauts on it is provided for yeah yeah for that. Yeah, so that would be, we would look at the role of the flight surgeon within a space agency. So for example, NASA, Canadian Space Agency. So when we talk about medical monitoring of governmental space agency astronauts, it starts with selection. We talked about how rigorous selection is. It continues on pre-flight training with regular medical checks. Um, there's pre-flight quarantine prior to flight to make sure that the astronauts don't have any infectious diseases that they can bring to the station with them. Uh, one thing we haven't talked about um, as an effective space Spaceflight is increased immunosuppression and increased germ virulence. So it's that's why we can, we're concerned about managing infectious diseases. Um, there's also pre-flight re, uh, rehab, and so we're trying to put the astronauts on a regular um, uh, workout physio workout program to build up the muscle uh, mass and the bone density. And that actually continues while the astronauts are on station. Um, they're actually um, mandated to work out one and a half to two hours daily, um, performing resistive and aerobic exercise six days a week to negate that loss of muscle mass and that loss of bone density. Um, on top of that, there's regularly scheduled conferences with flight surgeons um, to talk 
talk about private medical issues that may have come up. And there's also regularly scheduled conferences with um, the crew psychologist to talk about any mental health concerns. And then also for mental wealth, mental health and well-being, regularly scheduled conferences with family and loved ones. Wow, great. So uh, referring to the topic that you've mentioned about the health conditions of uh, citizens that are going to go into space, I was looking into, into the Inspiration4 crew, and one of them were actually, Haley was actually the um, bone cancer survivor, and, and that was really interesting that he was going to space. So thank you for answering these kind of questions now we're going to do uh, some questions and ask some i want to ask some questions about the education related parts so uh, how can medical professionals continue their career and their education in this field is there a, is there a residency master's degree or yeah. internship or something like that yeah absolutely and so there's multiple paths into um contributing to space medicine um so when we talk about practicing operationally um one um one piece of education that's really critical is having an aerospace medicine fellowship so typically you would do that after your first um specialization whether it's through internal medicine or emergency medicine um a lot of the nasa flight surgeons do have aerospace medicine residencies um i myself do not have an aerospace medicine um, res uh, fellowship. Um, and the reason is in Canada, um, the path towards getting aerospace has typically been through the military. Um, so on one hand, it's a challenge, but on the other hand, it's an opportunity because it means there's multiple paths towards um, pursuing and contributing towards space medicine. So for example, some of the flight surgeons at um, the Canadian Space Agency, they have very operational experience in emergency medicine and military medicine, and they're able to bring those skill sets um, to being a flight surgeon. Um, my own um, background, uh, so I um, initially trained in neurosurgery and then um, switched to general practice. And now um, the bulk of my practice is in rural emergency medicine, which for me actually has a lot of ties into um, thinking about challenges of exploration class um, spaceflight and me uh, medicine, because both are austere, remote, rural, um, resource-limited environments. Um, so when we talk about my path towards um, space medicine, um, it's been look, starting with the research side. So it starts with looking at questions that I can answer. And my first publication, honestly, um, looked at problems on Earth and said, how can we use telemedicine to address our global health challenges? And then um, from there, and this was while I was still a first or second year medical student, and then um, a someone saw this at a conference and said, hey, would you turn this into a book chapter on medical um, technologies or technologies from space that have benefited Earth? And then that's how I got into publishing on space. Um, and since then, it's um, looking at questions that we still need answers to and looking at the data of what do we know so far? What do we still need to find out? So I've also published on reproduction and sexuality in long duration space flight, psychological resilience in long duration space flight. Um, and then uh, as, as we've discussed, uh, medical guidelines for commercial, commercial suborbital space flight. So it's kind of um, even if you're not practicing on the um, clinical side, on the flight surgeon side, on the research side, there's a whole host of questions to be answered and it takes curiosity, it takes perseverance to publish, it takes working with a really good group. Um, and it's, you know, it's been something that's been really, really uh, fulfilling. And then on the operational side, um, taking this passion for space medicine, taking everything that I've read, all the books, all the papers I've read, and then being asked to teach a course on space medicine, um, 
using um, both principles of space medicine, principles of wilderness medicine, and then finally also starting to lead research on biomedical payloads in space, space-like environments and parabolic flight. So that's been my journey into trying to contribute to the body of knowledge of what we know in space medicine. So that's a really cool journey and congratulate for you on that. Um, so, um, but uh, referring to the, the last question, uh, are there any specific universities uh, for uh, continuing education or space medicine or something like that? That's a great question. So it's, um, it may be country specific. So in the States, there's um, great fellowships related to aerospace medicine. The University of Texas Medical Branch, for example, is a really well-known one. Um, they also have a short course. So another um, option to get acquainted with challenges of human spaceflight are looking at short courses like the um, UTMB Principles of Aerospace uh, and Space Medicine or Aviation and Space Medicine. And that's open to international participants. The European Space Agency runs a space medicine course for physicians as well. Um, and then uh, fellowships can be country specific. So it may be hard to get in um, as a non-US resident into um, a US fellowship program, but there's also options the world over. There's great programs in the UK, for example. Um, there's great, great programs the, the world over. Um, and then informally, uh, or I guess not informally, but other paths can be the same path that I pursued is, you know, starting off with a master's um, in space and then tailoring your interests. So for me, my first uh, um, uh, entry into space uh, was through an internship. Um, so I think those are multiple paths. And then also attending conferences, um, space conferences, uh, aerospace medical conferences, because all of the space medical people will be there and striking up conversations, asking about gaps to be filled, asking about research to be filled. And, and um, informally speaking, are there any specific resources, for example, books, journals or something like that for, for those who are interested in this topic? Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of great um, books out there. Um, one of the um, the the premier books uh, or texts for medicine, I think it's called Clinical Principles of Space Medicine, um, something like that. And it's uh, um, edited by one of the current uh, uh, NASA astronauts and physicians, Mike Barrett, and he has coordinated 80 other co-authors to make the most comprehensive um, space medicine textbook out there. Um, there's uh, Principles of Space Medicine. There's a lot of great books on space physiology um, in terms of specific conferences as resources, the Aerospace Medical Association Conference, um, the International Astronautical Conference, uh, sorry, Congress, and then um, the World Extreme Medical Conference. They're, these are all great places to meet like-minded space medical folks. So um, if you and your in, uh, listeners are interested, um, I can certainly send you a list of all of these resources that I mentioned. Great, great. thank you. So um, speaking about these kind of uh, career pathways, um, uh, how can you see the future of this science and the future of space medicine? Um, is it some kind of thing that is going to integrate into undergraduate medical education? Or do we need to have something in our undergraduate medical education regarding the progress in the space flights and something like that? 
Yeah, uh, that's a really insightful question. So I think on the one hand, we have to be uh, um, aware that we the barriers um, for access to space are slowly coming down. So as we make space more accessible, um, we need to be more aware of um, what those medical guidelines for who can or cannot fly are. Um, we need to also start thinking about the far term. You know, what does a medical infrastructure on Mars look like? Um, and then coming back to your question, at least at the um, subspecial at the residency level. Um, do we need to go from talking about aerospace medicine to space medicine to moon medicine to Mars medicine? And do we need to have subspecialties for that? And that's already happening today. So, for example, um, I forgot to mention that UCLA, University of California in Los Angeles, um, has established the first ever space medicine fellowship. Um, and the first um, fellow is going through that right now, um, which is, you know, historical. And so then coming back to... Um, bringing this into undergraduate medical education, we can absolutely be the changes that we want to see. When I was a second year medical student, I would I started the space medicine club, I would host lectures on space and extreme environment medicine. So it may not make it into the core curriculum, but it's still, um, you know, important uh, and and fascinating for um, future doctors to know about because they may be the ones who contribute groundbreaking breaking discoveries going forward in human exploration. Well, that was really great. And I actually, I'm, I'm run out of my questions, but that was really interesting discussion uh, regarding the topic. And I'm sure that our audience will love the topic because it's really new and it's really interesting and it's really passionate because the, the space is always something that we all like and need and want to learn more about that and want to do something that is related to that. And um, that was really it. And my questions are these. So thank you so much, Shana, for your great answers and for accepting my invitation for this podcast. So do you have anything else to add for our audience who are interested in this topic or are not aware of this topic? Um, this was a really great interview. Thank you so much for having me. And I would just say in closing that there are so many problems to be solved. There's so many challenges. And so if you're interested, you know, whether it's in molecular um, mechanisms of adaptation to radiation, to pharmaceuticals in the spaceflight environment, to next generation technologies um, for training, like virtual reality for spaceflight, all of these things are, are critical. So um, if you're even remotely interested in space medicine, we need all, all comers. Mm -hmm.